You're listening to a Life in Times of Video Game Soundbite. I'm Richard Moss. I'm working on a new episode at the moment about a mega influential website that in its heyday around 20 years ago was a sanctuary for all games outside the mainstream. The weird games, the unusual games, the obscure games. The interesting ideas released before their time or developed by people who lacked either the skill or the resources to execute on them fully. It was the home of the underdogs, and it was a wonderful place to stop over on your journey to encounter new old games, as well as to revisit your sentimental favourites. And it was run by a small army of volunteers headed by site owner Sarini Achavanan Taku. You'll get to hear all about its history and impact when I finish the episode, but in the meantime I wanted to post this shorter thing for two purposes. One, to play you a clip from my interview with Sarini that I think stands alone and is relevant to some recent conversations around Nintendo, which we'll come back to shortly. And two, to invite anyone who was influenced by Home of the Underdogs or who just loved the site to send me a voice clip of your thoughts or memories about it. If you've listened to the Moby Games episode, you'll know what I'm after. Just tell me what Home of the Underdogs means or meant to you and how its existence enriched your world. I'd prefer it if you could keep the clip under a few minutes, but feel free to go as short or as long as you like, then send it to me unedited. I'll integrate various parts of whatever I'm sent into the story, and unless you'd prefer to remain anonymous, I'll credit you and thank you at the end of the episode. You can get your files to me over email to richard at lifeandtimes.games or Twitter at mossrc or upload directly into a drop folder that I'll link to in the episode notes. So if you've been following the games industry news or the games history community discussions recently, you may have noticed some chatter about Nintendo announcing that they will be closing the Wii U and 3DS eShops to new purchases later this year and to all digital downloads, even for games that you own, in March 2023. That's not an unreasonable business move from Nintendo, but the way they're going about it has historians and archivists, and many others, deeply concerned, because many of these games cannot be legally acquired by any other means, and Nintendo doesn't seem to care. And it all ties into a discussion that's been ongoing for the best part of 25 years. What happens to games that go out of distribution? And in particular, what happens to games that go out of distribution and don't come back? Because for every Final Fantasy VI or Sonic the Hedgehog or Doom, games that keep getting remade or re-released for new platforms, there are hundreds, if not thousands of others that come out once and never again. Those games have cultural value, even if their rights holders believe they offer little material value. And as a technology-driven medium, the life cycle of games tends to be astonishingly short, often just a matter of months before they stop being available to buy new, and sometimes as little as a few years before they stop working on current hardware. So around 25 years ago, a group of people with ties to the wares scene, which is a games piracy scene, banded together to create something that they called the abandonware ring. 
It was an assortment of websites dedicated to championing and offering for download games they deemed abandoned by their publisher. This abandonware ring was a big influence on Sarini in creating her own abandonware site, the home of the underdogs. And I'll have more on that in the main episode, but I wanted to separately share her thoughts here on the appeal of abandonware, because it's topical again, and I think her perspective on this is interesting enough to stand alone. Here she is. Um, I Well, my first impression was that it's really impressive, you know, for and it's really a, a very good feeling that um, kind of gamers who enjoyed some games in the past would um, basically distribute them after they have been abandoned. I mean, I really like the word abandonware in the, in the sense that it has the word abandoned in it, right? And so I kept saying this over and over, like, and I'm sure th- there's a lot of controversy and discussion about this, but I would still maintain that, you know, abandonware uh, philosophically <laughs> is very different from piracy. You know, it, it's different from like zero day kind of pirated software, right? So the word abandoned itself means that the copyright holder or the publisher already abandoned the product. You know, so if you have abandoned the product, um, where else do you expect people to get it? I mean, I, I think if it's a physical thing, like let's say if I bought a washing machine, you know, for example, and I really like this washing machine, but then it stopped uh, functioning after five years, right? And if let's say I contact the company and they say, oh, sorry, we don't sell this model anymore. You know, we only sell like some newer version. And if I don't want to, if I don't want to buy the newer version, what would I do, right? That I would have to find some... I guess, a repair shop that can still fix it for me, you know, or like go to some secondhand market to find this particular model, right? So I think it's kind of similar thing with a bandware, except that because games are digital products um, and you don't necessarily uh, like need, I mean, you don't need a physical copy. So I think it's in a way it's natural that there would be this kind of community of people distributing the digital files of games that have been abandoned. Well, okay, so I guess it's still controversial, <laughs> but I've heard a lot of uh, debate, uh, you know, over this. And one, so some people would say that uh, by allowing the downloads of these games, you are kind of cannibalizing, you know, sale of the games. And this argument, I think, it doesn't really, I mean, it doesn't really uh, sound uh, solid because, for example, if I were to release like uh, the sixth sequel, you know, of my original game. Uh, why wouldn't I want people to play? And basically, if, they, if they're interested in the history of this game, right, before, before this sixth uh, iteration with the newest software, I mean, the newest hardware, if I release the first, uh, the first game for free, then people can see, like, how far I have come, you know. So it actually would look great on me, even as a creator, right? And, hey, look, I was able to do so much with whatever, like 16 colors, and you know, stuff like that, or with like word software and this. So I don't think that argument, <laughs> uh, yeah, so cannibalization is, but I think the argument I kept hearing a lot was just about infringing on other people's rights. I think this, so we kept coming back to this, that, you know, okay, it doesn't, regardless of whether the games have any value or not, or whether it can make money or not, and, you know, whether it's really, profitable or not to sell now, but you're really just infringing on other people's property rights, you know, and, and this kind of always been frustrating to me because then why can't we talk about whether 
like how reasonable those rights are, like in the first place. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, how 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 sensible the copyright regime is. Remember that if you'd like to contribute your story on the importance of Home of the Underdogs or how it influenced you, you can record a clip and send it to me over email to richard at lifeandtimes.games or twitter at mossrc or upload it directly into a drop folder that I'll link to in the episode notes. I'll be back with the full episode when it's done. Until then, stay safe. See ya.